Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Witnessing Unbound, Holocaust Representation, and the Origins of Memory is a groundbreaking and thought-provoking new volume from editors Henry Lustiger-Thaler and Habo Knoch, published by Wayne State University Press. In a series of essays and interviews, the authors focus on how the nearing disappearance of the last of the primary witnesses to the Holocaust has encouraged new directions in the narratization and understanding of modernity's most unfathomable event. The book interrogates the stylization of the account of the primary witness, and it offers significant new scholarship on the halachic witness, the relationality of being amongst Orthodox prisoners, and the frameworks of Jewish law and praxis through which they confront and endure their imprisonment, is among the most significant contributions of this volume. Witnessing Unbound's co-editor, Henry Lustiger-Thaler, is a professor of cultural sociology at Ramapo College of New Jersey. He also contributed to the volume, and he joins me to discuss the book. Professor Lustiger-Thaler, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation, uh, David. So can you tell us a little bit about your scholarship to date? Give us some background to your work and how this volume came about. Sure. Well, I kind of come to Holocaust studies through a, a delayed interest. I, I have to say for many years, I studied human rights abuses and within the context of globalization, I've also uh, studied social movements that address these issues. And about 15 years ago, I was, uh, I had written a piece on Holocaust representation and that began a, uh, in a sense, it began another kind of interest, but also turned into a kind of career as well. And I worked um, on several uh, large museum projects in Europe. And one of those museum projects was the development of the Baden-Belsen Gedenkstätte, the memorial at Baden-Belsen. And at that time, I was writing about the Bergen-Belsen uh, DP camp, and I published um, a few pieces on the religious dimension of DP life. Until then, and I would say just to paraphrase for a second, the history of displaced persons camps throughout Germany, Austria, Italy, was uh, not very well known. And I would say the scholarship itself is probably not more than 15 to 20 years old, at, at, the, at the limit, 20 years old, more, more likely around 15 years old. And I noticed in my work at Garden Dawson, uh, putting together the history of the DP camp, I, I realized that there was an enormous amount of religious life that was taking place in the DP camp in terms of revitalization of uh, religious life, revitalization of religious Yiddish types. And I began to explore that, and I explored it, um, I would say, globally, Given that Bergen-Belsen was in the British military, occupied military zone, I explored it in London, I explored it in New York, I explored it in Germany. And my fascination with what was left out of the rebirth narrative 
both in the American occupied zone of Germany and in the British occupied zone of Germany, uh, uh, it fascinated me. So I began to write uh, prodigiously on that on that topic, and um, so eventually, with the end of the curation of the museum, which ended some years ago, I began to um, uh, to think more about producing the scholarship uh, specifically on this area. Now. This book, Witnessing Unbound, is a combination of many things. One, it's a combination of uh, there were various conferences that were uh, developed at Barrett and Belson. And um, so some of these essays come from those conferences over the past few years. And I invited as well new scholars into, um, into the book. The basic ethos behind the book, and I think this occurs, David, every Every few years, as we're entering into the full development, full landscape of, of Holocaust culture, survivors are leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, what is being left in, in its wake is uh, representation, and, and an entire crisis of representation, discussions of representation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. Representation, even to the extent that in these sites of destruction that I worked at in Germany, they're not speaking about representation in the ways that scholars are perhaps speaking about representation, but certainly on the site itself, they avoid representation. They avoid artwork. They avoid photography, unless it's in a very specific bunker. But on the site itself, the site itself should carry that Benjaminian aura of the struggle of life in a death world. Right. So, so they have an intrinsic, because they're practitioners um, in these uh, sites of destruction, and which have various which have museums. Most of them have museums associated with them. Mm-hmm. So the, the book came out of the intersection of the difficulty of representation, and at the same time, the decline of the survivor population. Right. So that is the origin of this book, for me, comes from the meeting of those uh, two phenomena, and those phenomena are absolutely related, because as the survivor leaves the historical stage, it opens the door to further representation, mm-hmm. and necessarily so, and necessarily so. So this is a, an effort, this book was an effort to um, bring together scholars that are looking at experiences that really cut very closely to the core of the original experience of survival. Mm-hmm. And I asked the authors to try to stay to that. And, and of course, they, I chose them because their writing is, uh, is about that original experience and trying to interpret that original experience over and above the many forms of representation that that itself takes. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a slippery slope, uh, certainly, but uh, there are, in terms of the historical conjuncture is the, the disappearance of the survivor from the historical stage. And if I just may say something, I have a project right now, and I, I do quite a bit of uh, exhibition work, and I have a project in, um, in Poland, and I'm interviewing, uh, and, and this is uh, something that we'll talk about momentarily, about the faith-based dimension of, yeah. of my work. But I was looking for you know, both a Polish Catholic and uh, also Roma Sinti, mm. the faith-based the Catholic, and to interview them. And I was kind of taken back, uh, one, well, first, historically, Poland is not the, the largest pop- population of, 
Roma Sinti survivors of the Holocaust, they live in Germany. Mm-hmm. But there was a population in Poland, and I was supposed to interview this gentleman. He was 91 years old, and unfortunately, he was not feeling well that day. And this was about a month and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to rearrange an interview with him in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, however, what's striking about this is that he is the last Roma Sinti survivor of Auschwitz. Wow. The last living individual. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I thought to myself that, uh, you know, in the next few years, we will be hearing here in the United States about the last living survivor. That's right. That's right. We're, we're, in, that, we're in that kind of space where it is the, 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 the corporal part of this is developing, that survivors are leaving the, the historical stage. But at the same time, much of what has been built in terms of memorialization, in terms of many issues, are built on the presence of the survivors. So it's, um, it, it just gave the book, it, it made the book much more urgent from my perspective as well. Right. You, uh, you talk about the inherent problem of the narratization uh, of testimony, which in, even as it brings the reader into the circle of, you know, the immediacy and the naked truth of the experience, at the same time, the narratization creates a stylization around the rawness of the experience that in essence also throws up a veil. And this is something that some of the survivors who are interviewed uh, in the book or some of the witnesses that are interviewed in the book talk about. In other words, for example, Natalie Delbo, who's interviewed in Lawrence Langer's essay, talks about a sort of sensation of having died but gone on living. And uh, Primo Levi talks about a dream that apparently is widely shared amongst survivors that they a, a, a dream that they share that they rush to tell their stories and are both not believed and actually shunned, which was something that many emerging from the camps actually had. So I guess I'm saying all this to fra- to to sort of frame the question of what will change in terms of efforts to educate and commemorate this concatenation of events? What will change once the last survivor is gone, and how can we circumvent the problems of narratization that are inherent in the telling of the story? Yeah, correct. That's an excellent question. It's an excellent question, David. I think one of the things that when I, and I, and I interview survivors uh, quite a bit, I have been interviewing survivors for the past uh, 15 years, and um, both in Europe and in uh, Europe and Canada and in the United States. Uh, I think that to describe the experience of what is is a limit event, that it's a limit event in the sense of the horror that it encapsulates, Mm -hmm. humiliation and the horror that it encapsulates, and of course, finally, the incredible loss. There is, um, so I, I think we're, survivors educate us. They educate us in and, and, and their guides to this dark world. It, the, the issue really is how do we um, how do we uh, listen to the darkness of this world? And, and, and the larger, more complex question is how do you create a pedagogical program over and above the black letter history of this happened here, this happened here, this happened here, right, right, and over and above. The uh, the usage within historical work and scholarship 
of using the survivor testimony, memoir, diaries, to be a kind of justification of the actual historical record. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here you have the experiential justification of the legitimation of the uh, of the horror of the black letter historical record of Holocaust. So I so I think that Saul Friedlander uh, understood this uh, this uh, problem and, um, and and made a case in his uh, in his, his last books on the need for new forms of historical writing mm-hmm. and a form of historical writing where indeed survivor uh, subjectivity uh, the uh, either through the through testimony through memoirs through genre. And of course, I, I, I'd like to speak a little bit about my own viewpoint on uh, Halakhic, with, with, with yes. which is a, with a, a genre in and of itself. I would call it testimony is definitely a genre, memoir, <laughs> diary, and, and, and I, I'm introducing another genre. Uh, but I, I think that uh, one of the things that the, the complexity of how we will deal with the, how we listen in the future when the survivor is no longer amongst us, is I don't have the answer. I think I think it's a major challenge. All I'm seeing is problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I and I see significant ethical, aesthetic, representational, writerly problems because the very uh, the very image of the survivor and the very voice of the survivor has to a great extent become pre-actualized. Uh, so there's a kind of, uh, in the social sciences, one speaks of the, uh, the Hawthorne effect, <laughs> yeah. that, that the, the, the survivor or the interviewee is looking for cues that they see the listener mm-hmm. almost demanding by the kind of questions. And, and basically they... Uh, record what they're asked, what they're what they are asking of the of the survivor because the right. survivor the, the survivor compensates in in turn and to uh, to a great extent it is also a way to assuage the experience of the retelling yes. of, of the survivor. So there's I think a, a complexity of psychological deep psychological moments. And, uh, and 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 also cultural forms of listening mm-hmm. uh, that emerge, and um, so there is a kind of uh, uh, the survivor interview certainly very different than the memoir and the and the uh, diary. Survivor testimony can fall into a kind of listener's construction, and and and, and that is. Uh, that's a real that is a real problem in yeah. terms of the legacy that we're that we're left with, and the the fifty five or sixty five thousand interviews that the Show History Foundation has gathered, the seven or eight thousand interviews that the Fortune of Holocaust Testimony uh, Archives has gathered, and and when I say Holocaust Memorial Museum, there's a, there's there's a variety of different forms of listening, mm-hmm. and to 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 as many as I could. There's a, lot, a variety of different forms of listenings that out of these interviews that are um, uh, that were taken to be the survivor's story. So that, that sounds like a, a that's a really interesting observation. And I, I think when I was introducing you, I neglected to say that you're a professor of cultural sociology at Ramapo College of New Jersey, and that sounds like uh, that observation sounds like something informed by your background as a cultural sociologist. In other words, you're 
you're sensitive to the different cultural contexts that are built around uh, interlocutors and listeners between testimony and archive and between different forms uh, of speaking and listening. Uh, one of the really interesting things, and I want to come back to that, but one of the really interesting things about witnessing in this volume is your essay on halachic witnessing, uh, the Auschwitz memoir of Berish Erlich. So this is the, uh, you introduce and then uh, publish in this essay uh, text of an Orthodox survivor of Auschwitz. Can you tell us about this text, uh, how you came to find it, and what it adds to our understanding of the of the orthodox survivor of the halachic witness. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, firstly, let me just say how I came upon the. Uh, the it's a. It's in fact a a, a diary. Excuse me. It's a memoir. Mm-hmm. Was written in a in a diaristic form, i.e., day by day. And but it's, it's he wrote it at one time. He wrote it in nineteen late nineteen forty five in a displaced persons camp in Germany, the Landsberg Displaced Persons Camp. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he wrote it, in, uh, Beresh Erlich wrote it um, in an English class. And uh, the, the text itself is fascinating just visually. It's three languages. He wrote it in, um, in English, mm-hmm. in German, and he wrote it in Yiddish. And so each page, and it's written in, which was... In, or for the course at that time, the only kind of stationary around was military stationary. Mm-hmm. So he wrote it in a kind of uh, logbook for uh, incoming products and outgoing products uh, for uh, for military counting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the you have rather small pages and three languages um, described, and it, the uh, the. The memoir is broken up into two parts. One, his life in the Warsaw ghetto, which he uh, which he uh, describes uh, in a very acute, acute and very piercing way, mm-hmm. and um, and then his time in Auschwitz. Now, I am also a part of. Uh, just to go back for one second, part of the uh, work that I, that I was doing in Germany, etc., and my own writings, they came to the notice of. A group of individuals in uh, Brooklyn who uh, were putting together the um, uh, a proposal for a, a museum, a Holocaust museum that uh, examines the world from the Orthodox standpoint, and they asked me if I would uh, be willing to uh, do some work for them, and I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and currently, I am their uh, chief curator. As, as this museum is being put together, and the museum should be opening up at the end of 2018. And uh, one of the things that uh, we, uh, our acquisition curator, brought in this um, this diary. And so this diary actually entered into our archival division, uh, and uh, and it came from it was a, a survivor family living in Muncie, New York, which is a very religious community uh, north north of New York City, and the the diary has been sitting there since 1948 when Barish Erlich came to uh, the United States. So we received, we received the book, or rather the, uh, the, the, the memoir, excuse me, uh, just, I guess, about a year and a half ago. And so it is the first time that uh, the Auschwitz section of this memoir 
is uh, published. So it's a first publishing of this, of this particular memoir. Uh, the, uh, I'm working right now on the Warsaw ghetto part of the memoir, which is, is as fascinating. Um, but one of the things that this, um, uh, this uh, mem- uh, memoir introduced me to is kind of trying to understand the subjective experiences of, um, of, of survivors, orthodox and faith-based survivors. And uh, although many people speak about the loss, the loss of faith for many uh, religious survivors, mm-hmm. that, that entire thing has to be nuanced tremendously. Once you get into the ethnography of what is actually happening, um, so in a way, we have to kind of rely on some of Soloveitchik's work, where he makes a very clear distinction, Rav Soloveitchik makes a distinction between halakhic man and hashkafic man. So essentially, this is a first publication of this particular uh, of this particular uh, memoir. But one of the things that fascinated me... Of the Auschwitz portion of it. Of the Auschwitz Does that part- mean that other portions had been previously published? No, no, no. This is the first time that anyone has written on it, and it's the first time that the Auschwitz portion is actually published in its entirety in the English. I see. Uh, the, the exact English that it was written in, there was, there's no editing of the English, etc. And there is another part, which is the Warsaw Ghetto part, that's the other part of the memoir, and I'm working on um, an article on his, uh, his experiences in the Warsaw Ghetto. But one of the things that fascinated me about this whole approach was in reading some of the other material we have from Barry Sherlock, because we have his entire collection. Mm-hmm. And and I noticed a lot of issues around what is referred to as Shilot and Tishuvot, or Shilot and Shuvas, which are question and responsa. And I began to investigate question and responsa exchanges that occurred between uh, rabbinic uh, figures as well as just uh, Torah savvy Jews in the camps mm-hmm. and in the ghettos and looking at the exchanges that occurred between these individuals. And I was looking for any kind of uh, documented writings of the, of the rabbis, if they survived, uh, that would capture this. And my colleague, Esther Farkstein, who has a, uh, an article as well in this book, Esther Farkstein did a massive, massive data search, and she found most of these Shabbat and Shabbat were incorporated in the prefaces of the rabbis' uh, sforum that they wrote after the war. So this it, is really fascinating. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm glad you pointed that out because she talks about, uh, in, in other words, their testimony as witnesses was there from the beginning, but always framed in a halakhic context. In other words, it was published as introductions introductory comments in the sporium that they published uh, and therefore wasn't available to the general community or the academic community unless someone like her or like you went looking for it. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so there are hundreds of sporium that have these remarkable prefaces. There are some well-known rabbinic figures <coughs> who wrote um, Texts on their uh, question and response with uh, prisoners uh, themselves being prisoners, and uh, one of them is the uh, uh, Rav Sihar uh from, mm-hmm. from Hungary, 
uh, and he wrote the Mist in the Kadesh Hashem. Uh, and uh, and this is a it's an entire book that deals with the question and response and also uh, Rav Ephraim Oshri who's very well known and he wrote a response of the Holocaust and it's become a kind of staple of the rabbinic perspective on the Holocaust but <laughs> as a social scientist I wanted to understand this exchange that occurred and these exchanges occurred around uh, not necessarily religious dimensions although in the in the ghetto. You had the questions responded that dealt with religious uh, dimensions, but more so uh, dimensions about everyday life. And not, not so much about, you know, why, but what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the why is the hashkafic dimension. The what do I do now is the halakhic. What is my comportment now in the face of this? And um, normally, in normative times, if these were very, very complicated discussions, then it would go before a a, um, a Jewish a judicial court, a bet din. But given that that was impossible, the the emphasis on the rabbi was really quite remarkable. And so I started to look at this as a genre. And mm-hmm. if, uh, if one looks at testimony as a rather complex exchange between speaker and listener with all the complexities of the uh, speaking and listening. And Trezis has done some beautiful work on, on, on this in, in his book, uh, Witnessing, with, uh, um, Witnessing, Witnessing, mm-hmm. Witnessing. And uh, so there's a complexity of exchange that occurs, some of which I referred to earlier. And uh, so the uh, testimony is uh, a very specific genre, and, and it is exactly as it happens uh, when one uh, does a survivor testimony, and whatever institution it goes to, I mean, a, a bomb can fall in the middle of the interview, and you can't edit it out. I mean, right. it, right. it, it's a, um, so it's not it's not like documentary film. It is actually a genre of itself testimony, and, you have, yeah. and I can go through the various genres of the memoir, that which really is a um, a memory text looking. Mm-hmm. No matter when it's written, if it's written eight months after, in the, in the case of Barry Sheriff, or if it's written eight years later, different perspectives given the time, the distanciation from the actual events. And of course, the diary is a recounting of both mundanity and in the context of Holocaust, horror, brutality, and death becomes mundanity. And right. so I looked at the, uh, the halakhic witness as a relational kind of event that happens between a prisoner and a rabbi who is a prisoner and the exchange takes place over several uh, encounters and uh, at, and and oftentimes the rabbi is is at his wit's end with the kind of question and uh, at the limit question of can I can I ransom my son to get out of this cage that he did with 500 other boys if it means that another boy will die, will be murdered in his place. <laughs> Those kinds of questions. Uh, and, and if one looks at the nightmare of Auschwitz uh, and the relationship that um, the uh, capos and guards had with the, uh, with the camp administration, I mean, ransoming was was an, an event that happened often. In, uh, at, at, at and they were trying to 
a halakhic frame around this kind of limit question on a on a daily basis, Correct. even as they were trying to survive. Correct, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if you would talk briefly about uh, your interview with Father Patrick Debois. This is a really interesting interview with someone who's done astonishing work finding mass graves from mass murders of Jews in Eastern Europe, and who makes some very sensitive and penetrating observations. Among them, the differences in the redaction and collection and archiving of witness and survivor testimony between East and West, and that in some cases he has learned both how this information is kept and how it is concealed, uh, and how uh, witnesses and participants uh, still living in Eastern Europe uh, confront the possibility of witness and testimony. Can you talk briefly about that? Absolutely, absolutely. So in in, in Patrick's work, there is a uh, there's a dichotomy. One, the uh, peasant bystander. Peasant bystander, he's very clear about in terms of uh, the complexity of, of of the bystander. Everything from someone who is involved in, their, in, in requisitioning processes, which taking the clothes and, 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 and taking whatever jewelry, taking gold out of the teeth, all these elements of the, 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 the bystander who was requisitioned by the Einsatzgruppen uh, to, um, to take whatever can be taken and then, by, by, and then uh, it, it can be taken out of the village by the, uh, by the Germans. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the peasant neighbor uh, who was watching all this and watching uh, the entire Jewish community being marched out, shot, and 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 uh, and uh, in, in mass graves. Does Father Dubois find that people that such witnesses and neighbors have had trouble living with these memories, and do they have trouble speaking about them, or is it just something that happened? No, no, no. It's 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 a it's a it's it's an it's an event. Once it's uncovered, uh, it's an event that is central to their uh, to their lives to a great extent. Uh, and, and Father Lebois, uh covers this in his first book, uh, Holocaust by Bullets. Uh, but most most definitely, the um, the the event is an event of tremendous trauma. If you can imagine these. Individuals today, they were around eight or nine years old when they witnessed mass murders, and that is a an, an event for a child of such tremendous uh, epic proportion that one can believe of the sublimation that occurs. But what Patrick does is very interesting. He comes in as a Catholic priest and he takes confession. So his approach to beginning the dialogue of the interview is. It's confessionary, and they they he takes confession from them, and as he's taking confession, the story of Holocaust comes out, and they know why he's there. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. many of them, and it just shows you how the so little has happened in terms of uh, the mass graves in Eastern Europe, uh, and former so, uh, probably the uh, satellite states of the Soviet Union. Patrick was often asked, and I think he captures it in the interview, he mentioned in the interview that uh, they, or, or I asked him the question in the interview, where survivors, uh, excuse me, bystanders who witnessed the murder, the mass murders, ask if he is part of, because he's French, if he's now a French commission, 
because the last time anyone ever asked them a question was the Soviet Commission in 1946. So the kids remember Soviets coming into their villages and asking questions about the mass murders and where the mass graves are and taking testimony, uh, taking testimony, uh, audio testimony uh, on what, what occurred. And so did this information become available after the fall of the Berlin Wall? Was it only then that scholars from east or west could access it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that is, and it, it is still being accessed uh, right now. It's still being accessed right now because we're looking at uh, two years of, of investigation by the Soviets on what happened, what happened in these villages. Hmm. And uh, so Patrick's uh, Patrick's work is... Uh, finding where these mass graves are and, um, and having some sort of level of communication as well with, uh, with the families. Which involves, at least in the part of witnesses, bystanders, and even participants, it would sound like a, a measure of absolution or at least forgiveness. Yeah, I would say uh, certainly in the in, in Catholic uh, religious framework, um, a measure of forgiveness Mm -hmm. Our time is growing short. I have just two more questions for you. One is that there's been uh, literature, uh, you know, since the topic of cultural memory became something of considerable academic focus due to the work of Jan Osman and others in the late 80s, considerable attention was turned to memory, to cultural memory and to Holocaust memory. And some scholars have begun to suggest there's almost a surfeit of memory how do you respond to that observation? Well, I think that memory studies itself academically is a fairly new phenomenon. And I, I, I don't really look at there being a surplus right now, if, if I caught you correctly, but there's a kind of surplus of memory or a lot of work. That's a surf- surf- yeah, yeah. Surf- because I, to, to a certain extent, and, and I, I say this also, I'm the uh, series editor for, um, uh, for Routledge, uh, Further Memory, um, studies collections is called mm-hmm. uh, Memory Studies Global Constellations. And we have studies from all over the world. And I would have to say that many of the uh, writings that we get are from uh, not necessarily historians, although we have some historians, but most of them are from political scientists, from anthropologists, from uh, historical sociologists who work somewhat mm-hmm. differently than, than historians, and some from historians. But I would say that historians are not the largest group that I have in my series right now. So I think that the whole discussion of memory is not so much as a field in of itself, but how the paradigm of looking at the past through the present is a element that many, many disciplines are beginning to see as a, a valuable way of looking at their own disciplinary concerns, mm-hmm. understand the vestiges of the past, in, in the present, in, in, in terms of discourse uh, and in terms of practice. Uh, so from that standpoint, I, I, I think we're just at the very beginning of the uh, exploration of a kind of a memory analytics um, mm-hmm. on, on every level, the aesthetic level, the literary level, the, uh, and, and the level of, of, uh, of representation uh, taking place in museums at, at sites of destruction, which yeah. is particularly problematic. It's, it's, it's not, you know, art at Yad Vashem is one thing. Art at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum outside is another thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But art at a site of destruction is, is, is complex. 
Right. My, my final question is really kind of a personal one. I think you note in the introduction that you are the son of a Holocaust survivor. Would you mind talking a little bit about that and about how that has informed your work? Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, an interesting question. I, I, I have to say that I think there are many different uh, relationships that one has to, uh, to, to having a parent, or in my, in, in, uh, in my case, my mother was a, uh, a Polish survivor of the Holocaust, went through uh, multiple camps. And my father, uh, Paul Shapiro's uh, chapter on the Soviet experience, the Soviet mm-hmm. Jewish experience, that would be my father's experience. He went deeply into the Soviet Union for, the, for those uh, four years. Uh, what it does is it makes me more sensitive to how I am listening. And I think that... Um, uh, that can take many, many different forms. But as a scholar, I'm, 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 I'm constantly analyzing my own techniques of listening when I'm interviewing and when I'm writing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, it has sensitized me to voice. Well, I really want to thank you for joining me today to talk about uh, this very compelling book, which is a really welcome addition uh, to multiple fields having to do with memory and Holocaust studies at a time, as you have noted, when the last of uh, the witnesses uh, and those who experienced the horror of the camps uh, are still among us. I've been talking today with Henry Lustiger-Taller, professor of cultural sociology at Ramapo College of New Jersey, and he is the co-editor with Habo Knoch of Witnessing Unbound, Holocaust Representations and the Origins of Memory, published in 2017 by Wayne State University Press. Professor Lustiger-Taller, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much, David.